Hey there, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guide of funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. It's just full of funky richness. Tasty stuff. Whether you're watching on our YouTube broadcast or on funkinstuff.net or through Vimeo or listening to the audio podcast version on iTunes or from other leading providers, as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. Speaking of which, if you don't already, make sure to subscribe. Subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes and thrives. Join the masses that are subscribing. And if you've already done so, tell a friend, tell family. We need that support. Thank you. So appreciated. This episode features one of the most prominent, successful, and tasty jazz soul funk saxophonists to arrive on the scene since the mid-1970s. Speaking of Ronnie Laws, coming from a musical family that includes jazz flautist Hubert Laws and singers Eloise and Deborah Laws, and growing up in Houston around the block from the Crusaders, Ronnie got his professional start with Earth, Wind and Fire back in 1972. Leaving to pursue a solo career, he performed with Hugh Masekela and did session work until Donald Byrd helped him land a recording deal with Blue Note Records that resulted in his stellar debut album, 1975's Pressure Sensitive. That record took off on the strength of the funky instrumental hit, Always There. Through the years, he would release more than 20 of his own albums, with seven of them cracking Billboard's Top 200. Some of his other hits included Friends and Strangers, Saturday Evening, Something Special, Every Generation, Stay Awake, In the Groove, and City Girl. He also appeared on dozens of other artists' works, including his siblings, Wayne Henderson, Patrice Russian, Mickey Howard, Ramsey Lewis, Denise Williams, Jeff Lorber, Sister Sledge, Larry Dunn, and Maurice White. In this interview, recorded nearly a year after technical issues preempted Law's initial Truth and Rhythm appearance, the Saxmaster talks about his amazing musical family and upbringing, also, the thrill of playing with heroes like B.B. King and Quincy Jones. He tells why he left Earth, Wind & Fire, how his hit albums and tracks were created, why he feels shunned by the smooth jazz movement, how his son is following his woodwind footsteps, a recent lifetime achievement honor, and the excitement of imminent new music and ongoing live performances. It's time to learn the laws of soulful and funky jazz according to one of its principal architects, Mr. Ronnie Laws. Hey, I cannot be more pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Studios renowned jazz and R&B saxophone and flute player and singer-composer Ronnie Laws. The brother of flautist Hubert Laws and singers Eloise and Deborah Laws, since his 1975 debut, Ronnie has released more than 20 albums, seven of which have charted among Billboard Magazine's top 200. No small feat for a jazz artist. 
Ronnie, so glad to have you. How are you today? Very good. Thank you very much. Um, looking forward to uh, um, to doing this. Excellent. So you're coming to us from the Los Angeles area, correct? That's correct. Yeah. I've been in Los Angeles for uh, a little over about 48 years now. Wow. Originally from Texas, from Houston, born and raised there and moved out to L.A. in, in 1970. 70, so you're almost a native at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, it's a thrill to have you on. Uh, I think I mentioned to you before, but, you know, I'm a saxophone player myself, alto. And, oh. um, you know, when I was coming up in school, um, right around when you started uh, with Pressure Sensitive, I was in uh, middle school. And you were you're you're my favorite, you know. I, wow, I thank you. I graduated from like Boots Randolph to Ronnie Laws. <laughs> yeah, well, that's I'm, I'm, that's an honor. I really thank you for that uh, that ex you know you sharing that experience. Yeah, I would say you know yourself, Grover Washington and Maceo. Those are you're my yeah. guys. Good company. Yeah. <laughs> So, Ronnie, um, you're from Texas. Could you uh, share with us a little bit of how you first, you know, got into playing the saxophone and what it was like being in that musical family? Yeah, well, you know, I started when I was about uh, 11. And um, my brother-in-law, who had just gotten out of the military service and uh, who's, you know, he, would, he was a wannabe saxophone player. And so uh, I would frequent you know, visit him and, you know, and, and sort of follow him around as he was, you know, walking through the, you know, house playing records and, and trying to play the horn, you know, and I, you know, I, I observed him for a while, you know, and, uh, you know, check out the fingerings and what he was doing. And, and one day he uh, decided to take a little break and, you know, we were listening to, I think to uh, David Fathead Newman, uh, hard times. And, uh, and, and he took a little break and, and I, I, when he did that, I went and picked up the uh, the, the the horn, and and I actually was able to con construct a scale, the C scale, and it it it, it blew him away because he was he didn't have any idea I was you know uh, following him that closely you know, and but then when I heard uh, David Fathead Newman you know play uh, uh, Will a Week for Me, I mean that that you know that did it for me you know, and I just I just started you know just uh, basically learned uh, by ear. Every, you know, and and I went and purchased a, 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 a you know a saxophone book and and learned all the fingerings and and just sort of self-taught myself. And I listened to a lot of a lot of music, a lot of records, good players, you know. And then I was got to the point where you know I you know I developed a, you know uh, uh, to the point where I could actually perform with other people. And the first uh, experience I had was with my was Kenny Rogers because uh, he was doing the club circuit in, in Houston. And my sister was a background singer, Eloise. And she was, you know, bragging about her little brother that, that played saxophone. And so Kenny said, well, bring, bring him up, bring him by. Let's, let's, let's check him out. Sure enough, uh, I, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, impress him to the point where he, you know, he, he had me to perform with him. And uh, that, that's where it started for me. And then about, how, about how old were you when you got on stage? With I was about 12. I was 12. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Twelve you, years old. Yeah. Were you nervous or were you uh, precocious? 
uh, maybe a little nervous, but you know, I you know I felt pretty comfortable actually. You know, I mean, you know, I've been, I, you know, I was always in a, that musical environment with you know with guys in my neighborhood like the Crusaders, you know, uh, Wayne Henderson, uh, Joe Sample, Stick Super, and uh, Wilton Felder. Those were like the guys I would like, you know, uh, go and hang out when they were when they were rehearsing. I mean. Uh, they would rehearse at uh, Wayne's house with Wayne Henderson lived right behind us. And so the elementary school I attended was right in front of their house. And when school was adjoined, was adjoined uh, 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 out, I would rush over to their place and wait for them, you know, and they would come in and, uh, you know, they were in high school at that time. And when they would come over, I would just sit there and just sit in the corner and absorb everything they were doing, you know? So I had those kind of, you know, mentors, you know, and, and aside from my brother, Hubert, and, you know, my mom was a, uh, the church choir, local church choir director. So it was always music in the, in the, you know, in the home, especially on weekends, because they would have, you know, the choir would rehearse in our home, <laughs> you know? So the, all of those things culminated into really, you know, inspire me to, you know, to, to move forward, you know, and, uh, on, and pursuing, uh, you know, music. Wow, growing up uh, right with the Crusaders, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was my homeboys, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> that's something um why why uh specifically the tenor sax and the flute i mean as i said i played alto so what attracted you to that instrument i, I started out on, on, on alto okay. and i just i just sort of you know uh moved up to tenor in uh in college because in in high school it was all alto and so when i went you know i had several full music scholarships and um and uh i decided to uh, attend a university in in east texas uh, nacogdoches stephen f austin and uh but i had scholarships to berkeley school of music in boston and um uh, north texas state and which is an incredible program in texas and uh but i wanted to stay, stay a little closer to houston and then I eventually went from uh, Stephen F. in my junior year to Texas Southern University. Uh, but I, you know, it was at that point that I, you know, decided to pick up the tenor and soprano. You know, and I, you know, I did a lot of work in the clubs and uh, did the whole club circuit. And uh, and I, you know, decided that I wanted to just sort of, uh, you know, move on to, you know, more versatility, you know, as far as playing the saxophones. So you said you were self-taught, but obviously you had to I had tried. studied going yeah. for the college route. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in uh, you know, junior high and uh, in high school, that's where I got my formal training. And more so in high school, uh, this was during the, the period of, uh, of integration, you know, in the mid-60s. And uh, there were two iconic high schools that were really uh, for, 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 for you know, as far as the black high schools, it was Phyllis Wheatley and Cashmere Garden. And those are the ones that I was, you know, wanted to attend. But at that time they, they had forced busing. So we had to go to the the, uh, the the schools that were, that was within our district. And the high school that I had to go to was Robert E. Lee High School. <laughs> and uh, it was like 10 black students out of uh, 2,500 white students. Yeah, but uh, what I, unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize that at that time the the music uh, band director was one of the best in the in the state. Uh, his name was Ed, Edward Trangoni, and um, 
And so I first day in attendance, I, I mean, I, I immediately went to the music, you know, department and, you know, let it be known that I wanted to, you know, I wanted to audition for the band. And, 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 uh, and I did do that. And uh, Trangoni, very insightful man. I mean, he, you know, he, he could recognize talent immediately. And so he happened to come in the, the you know, the following day and, uh, and, and play, you know, the thing that, that, that uh, impressed him was that, well, first of all, he, he put music in front of me and I couldn't read. I mean, I wasn't really efficiently good at reading. And, but he said, look, just, just play something, play anything. You know, I played tape five, the solo, Paul Desmond's solo to the, to the, to the letter verbatim. <laughs> and once I finished that, he, he was just blown away. He said, look, you, you meet me at school before school at, you know, seven in the morning and I'll teach you how to read. And I did that. And uh, the next semester I was, you know, I qualified for the, you know, the, uh, for the uh, music program there. Wow. So you really came to reading later on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, who were who some of your early sax, uh, you know, idols or who did you emulate on the instrument? Well, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, David Fathead Newman uh -huh. and uh, eventually, uh, you know, Cannonball Adderley and, and, uh, Wilton Felder, you know, he, I mean, he really had an impact on me, you know, being from Texas and, and he had that big Texas tenor sound, you know, and um, then eventually uh, I was introdu introduced to, you know, John Coltrane music, and that really turned me around as far as how I approached the horn, especially soprano. So was your early um, interest in, in doing more traditional jazz or doing more contemporary jazz, or what? What direction were you heading? I just sort of let it take its course, you know, because I was, you know, I was, uh, I was impacted by, you know, just the whole musical environment, you know, with the gospel thing with my mother, and she, my mom was a connoisseur of, of, of music. I mean, she introduced us to all different uh, genres, you know, like Ella Fitz, from Ella Fitzgerald to Ray Charles, B.B. King, I mean, that whole gamut of, you know, those are, you know, the people that, uh, the artists that she, she, and you know, she insisted that we, you know, be, you know, know about. And so that was like every day, you know, I mean, we wake up in the morning with, with the, you know, with, with uh, the blues radio, you know, uh, Muddy Waters, you know, B.B. King, you know, no, those, you know, those kind of artists. And that was like a daily thing, you know, getting up. You know, I'm probably going to school. So I have that mixture. And then, of course, you know, going through the 60s, you know, the, the Motown uh, the sound was huge, you know. And uh, so I had that filtering in. And and uh, then you know, the jazz thing came through my brother, you know, Hubert. And uh, so it was a good mixture. It was a good mixture. And, and when it was uh, the opportunity came for me to... Uh, sort of expand my, you know, my, my musical horizons. I, you know, I decided to just incorporate all those, that those elements into what I do musically. And so uh, when I joined Earth, Wind and Fire in the in 71, uh, the one thing I appreciated about that group was uh, Maurice was very, uh, very open to, you know, to, to doing stuff that was innovative. And uh, he allowed me to do, you know, to expand and, you know, when I perform with them and, and with the group, I was one of the original members of Earth, Wind and & Fire. And so that, that, uh, that's where it began. So did you connect with him in Chicago and how did that happen? It happened here in LA. Oh. Uh, 
Yeah, I was actually performing with a, uh, an associate of Maurice White. His name is uh, Doug Kahn. And I was actually performing with Doug Kahn. And uh, Doug had made it, you know, he announced to me that Maurice White was looking for a sax player, you know, to you know, try to put a you know, the group together. And I just followed through on that, you know, and uh, went auditioned and, and thinking I was going to be a part of a horn section. After Maurice listened to, you know, heard me or listened to me, he said, look, we're just going to go with, with one horn, you know, which was very, that was unique because most of the R&D groups at that time, they all had horn sections. But that's what made Maurice so unique, you know, and innovative. Genius, really a genius. What were those uh, recording sessions like? It was, uh, that was one of the, you know, that was my introduction into watching how, you know, production is done in the studio, you know, and Maurice was, uh, he had, he had, uh, he had perfected that, you know, how they would lay the rhythm, the rhythm section thing down first, and then it would come do overdubs and, you know, have everyone to participate in that way. And, uh, so I, you know, I, I sort of got my, uh, my studio legs, you know, working with him in, in the studio. Did he kind of let you do your own thing or did he tell you what he wanted? He let me do my own thing. You know, that, that, you know, and uh, and that was much appreciated. He well, he he just basically understood, you know, uh, what my contribution would be, and he and he and he took advantage of that, you know, and he allowed me to do that. And you did just the one one record with them, or was it two? I did the uh, power, uh, the uh, last days and times, and uh, and then thereafter, Maurice would have me come in and you know and uh, basically. You know, do like uh, um, little solo spots with you know some of their later albums. Why did you not stay a full group member? <laughs> it just wasn't my thing. Yeah, I've always had aspiration to be a solo artist, and and you know, I'm, and I'm, you know, Maurice knew that. You know, it was it was just a matter of time, and um, uh, it. I just want to, it's something that's innate, you know, you either, you know, you're either, a, a, you know, a side man or, you know, you have leading, uh, uh, you know, qualities as a leader. And um, so uh, when it came to time to actually sign with the group, I knew at that point it was time for me to, you know, make a major decision as to whether I was going to pursue a solo career or not. And it wasn't an easy decision because, uh, you know, I knew that, that their success was right there. I knew it was in front of them. And of course, you struck up, uh, I guess, a lifetime friendship with Larry Dunn as part of Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's, that's my little brother. <laughs> so you uh, took that gutsy move and, and, and kept going, trying to pursue your own uh, solo dream. Uh, mm -hmm. What were the uh, steps that eventually led to you to getting a solo deal? Well, when I left Earth, Wind & Fire, uh, I had the opportunity to perform, you know, be a part of... Uh, but to play with an artist that I've always admired. When I was in college, he had a, a big hit called Grazing in, in the Grass, and it was Hugh Masekela. Mm -hmm. And um, when I left Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, I did a, more, a little more freelancing. And then I was approached by Wayne Henderson, who used to actually play drums for, for Hugh Masekela. And uh, he, he, he let it be known to me that Hugh Masekela was looking for a sax player. And so I went in art audition, and then I got the gig, and I played with Hugh for about a year. And uh, this, the funny thing that happened was, you know, he 
over, over the period of time of performing with him, he recognized that, uh, you know, the, the audience response to me, when we were on stage together. So uh, one day he decided, uh, he called me and he said, you know, Ronnie, he said, I think it's time for you to do, um, I mean, I'm actually impressed, you know, saying how he said it, you know, Ronnie, it's time for you to do your own thing, man, <laughs> you know? And so uh, that, that really spurred me on. I mean, it, you know, gave me the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, encouragement to, to you know go and, and really pursue the, the solo career what, what did you learn or pick up from your experience with him he's a great uh, his his uh his stage performance i mean his his presence on stage i mean he's he's, he's just a great performer you know you have to communicate with the audience aside from you know just playing the, you know the horn it was more than that you know so he was just an all-around great performer did you feel more of a an affinity for studio or stage at that point? Well, I think more uh, stage, more stage. Yeah, I had to really get uh, accustomed after doing the first album. And, you know, it was, it was pretty challenging because you know, I mean, that's where you perfect everything in the, in the studio. So, yeah. You know, at the time of uh, just performing live, that was a little more, I felt a little more at home with that. Yeah. So you got your deal with Blue Note. How did, how did that become reality? Well, when I left Humanity Kayla, I, you know, I, I uh, started putting demos together and uh, trying to shop a deal, you know. And, uh, Ultimately, I mean, what happened was uh, I went to Blue Note Records and um, Donald Byrd was there. You know, he was, um, uh, I, you know, basically uh, doing this thing with the Blackbirds. And he, you know, he <clears throat> I ran into him and I played my demo, you know, with George Butler, who was there at the same time, you know, the back to the Blue Note label. And I played uh, this one song on soprano and uh, after they finished listening, uh, Donald said, man, I never heard a, a soprano player sound like that, you know? And so he said, look, I, you know, I like to get involved, you know? So he actually volunteered to want to actually produce me in, on, on the Blue Note label. But his schedule was such that he, he just didn't have the time. I mean, he would have me come to his house up in the North, North Hollywood Hills and, and uh, just hang around and wait for him when he's in and out of the studio. And, and uh, but at that, 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 at a certain, uh, certain point, I just realized that it wasn't going to happen with him. Not that he didn't, he had good intentions, but so eventually I just hooked up with my, my homeboy, Wayne Henderson, and Wayne went and reintroduced the, the demo to uh, George Butler. And uh, Eddie Levine, who was the assistant to George Butler, really was the guy that, uh, that uh, the instrumental in, in me getting that deal. And the rest is history. How, about how long did it take you to cut it, and how did you... Decide what you were going to have on it. Well, we did the. I was pretty prepared. I mean, you know, with the demo, the band I put together, you know, Roland Batista and Donnie Beck, and there was some just uh, some great players, and and uh, we had rehearsed very, you know, extensively. And so when it came time to actually go in the studio and record, we we were more than prepared, you know, and made made uh, Wayne Henderson's job very easy, you know, and. Uh, you know, we have people like Joe Sample playing. Uh, that's Joe Sample on the, Always There, mm -hmm. and Wilton Wilton Felder's on bass, and uh, 
So I was really privileged to have, uh, you know, the right people, the right elements, you know, to come together and make that a successful project. Yeah, you had some great heavy hitters right from the get-go. Yeah, water. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Um, did you did you feel like Always There was, was going to be hit, uh, you know, right from the beginning? And how many takes did it take for that one that eventually got out? Two. Wow. Two takes. <laughs> 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 yeah, two takes, and uh, as far as the the duration of doing the, the entire project, I think it was no more than a, maybe uh, a good month. It was, yeah, we were like in the studio, but we actually cut the tracks in two weeks, and then the, the other two weeks we did the uh, overdubs, and and uh, some of that stuff was done live. Always there with that that was done live. There was no overdub. That that that, that, that actually the, that was the first or second run the solo. Well, that had some great percussion on it too. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and radio jumped on it right away, pretty much, right? Immediately, yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was something very special, and and uh, it was a little different, you know, because I mean, it had you know some R and B elements, and and you know as well as jazz, and and uh, it, it sort of introduced a whole new genre of uh, instrumental music, you know. Yeah, I mean, that was right at the peak of soul jazz and, and, and funk jazz and was such a great era for that and you were right in the thick of it. Um, so did you tour extensively just on that first record? I did, yeah, yeah. yeah who, are some of the, who are some of the cats that you went out with? Well, as I said, Roller Batista, uh, Donnie Beck, Bobby Lyle, um, yeah. Steve Gutierrez was on drums. That was the band. Who who are some of the uh, people you went out with on the bill, though? Who'd you share a bill with? Oh man, it was a wide range. <laughs> it, it going from, uh, in fact, my my first debut uh, opening up was for uh, Four Nights at the Coconut Grove for BB King, mm -hmm. and uh, that was that was one that was like a dream come true. And then, but I played with so many, man, it's taking me all day to go through the list of artists that I was built with, you know, uh, from Grover Washington to um, uh, Simpson, what's the name? Uh, Ashford and Simpson? Ashford and Simpson, uh, Shaka Khan. Uh, it was just so. <laughs> It was a, it was a quite a, you know, it was a, you know, I mean, I wasn't, you know, Eddie Harris. I mean, it was so many different artists, you know, that um, that I was privileged to to be on the same stage with. Now I want to say somewhere around that time, I think I saw you at the Roxy. Did you play the Roxy at some point? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I did. Yeah, <laughs> a couple of times actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that venue. Great, great yeah. venue. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> so. You came back in, uh, you didn't wait too long, and you did Fever, and you kept things hot with that one. Mm -hmm. um, did anything change, or you pretty much kept the formula and, and the same personnel? And yeah, yeah, pretty much. And then uh, Friends and Strangers was, was a turning point because it really crossed over and, you know, into a, a whole broader spectrum of uh, radio. You know, and that was my, actually my first gold album, was Friends and Strangers. Yeah, some water. Was it a conscious decision, you know, that you were going to go in that direction? I mean, 
Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Then mm-hmm. that's where that's where Larry uh, Dunn uh, came and put his 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 uh, his spirit on the on the on the project. You know, doing t- you know uh, this is uh, synthesizer uh, input. You know, and um, he, he with he his contribution really uh, kicked. I mean, made the uh, elevated the project actually. You know. So that one had, of course, the tile cut was a huge hit on radio. Wasn't there another track on it too that got play, radio play, another hit? On uh, Friends and Strangers? Yeah. Uh, wow. Oh, yeah, Just Love. Uh-huh. Which was, you know, it was uh, a little duet we did uh, live, Larry and I did. Uh, I don't know how much airplay it got, but that, you know, that was a very special cut. Excuse me. <clears throat> So at this point, you're doing you're you're basically headlining some shows. I'm guessing too, right? A lot of shows, yeah. Yeah, and doing some TV. A lot of TV. Did uh, uh, Soul Train, um, Solid Gold. I mean, uh, uh, what's this guy named Wolf? Uh, Wolfman Jack. Oh, uh, Midnight Special. I did that. I did that. Yeah, Midnight Special. And uh, yeah, so you know, it, it was a wide open field for me. So, were you um, being asked to to uh, do guest spots and other people's projects as well? Yeah, quite a few. Yeah, Maurice, you know, his first solo uh, project, he, you know, he had, he, you know, he had me to come and be a guest, you know, and perform. And um, Sister Sledge, I mean, it's Howard Hewitt. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of people, a lot of artists. It's sort of hard to pin any. I mean, I know it excludes some. Craig T. Cooper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you yeah, kept the hits uh, coming with um, Very Special. Yeah. Eventually came with your yeah, sit, uh, Deborah yeah. singing on there. That's correct. I produced that that album. And uh, yeah, it was a major, major hit for her. Yeah. Did you produce a whole record for her? Just uh, I produced a whole record. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, what happened with her? She didn't do that many projects. Well, you know, uh, it's one of those age-old stories. You know, some people wanted to, you know, get involved in her career, namely her husband at that time, and and uh, just the the the, uh, the interacting between him and the, and the label and. You know, and it just sort of discouraged uh, the label from going forward. You know, with a, another project, even though they did commit to another project, but it just, uh, you know, that's certain people shouldn't be in the business. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that's what you know. That's sort of a, you know, in a nutshell, that's what happened. But you know, I'm I'm going to uh, I've been working with Deborah, and you know, we're not giving up on her doing you know another project. So just stay tuned. Well, that's good to hear. I mean. Um, she didn't have a super powerful voice, but it was a it was a really nice voice. No, she has a powerful voice. Does she? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh wow, well, we got to hear yeah. that. Yeah, you should hear her latest that. her latest uh, efforts. I mean, there's a, a thing she did with uh, Manyungo uh, Jackson, and as uh, she did a, a, a one of the cuts of Freddie Hubbard. Uh, I forgot the name of the track, but uh, man, she did a rendition of it, it, one of his uh, uh, songs and. And she did the solo, his solo verbatim, 
and you wouldn't even know that that's her. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, because she's, she's very powerful. You know, before the, you know, I'm not just saying this because I'm a brother, but before the Whitney Houston's and those people surfaced, Deborah was, she was projected to be it, you know, with the, with the, uh, with the label at that time. And uh, they was, you know, that she, they had, they were putting everything they could, you know, promotional wise to make that happen. Uh, but as I say, you know, circumstances uh, sort of got things got in the way and, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the rest is, you know, history, you know. Well, I know, I mean, on that track, very special. I, I love the, the quality of her voice, you know, it's yeah. terrific. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she's a great, she's a powerful singer, very powerful. <clears throat> the other track I was trying to think of, Ronnie, was, was Saturday Evening. Mm -hmm. That was also another hit on that record. Yeah. That's true, right? I'm friends with strangers. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't think of that, but you're right. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, and um, yeah, that that was definitely one of the one of the, uh, the tunes that stood out as well. Yep.